Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is David Moyes. This is Yapstam. This is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Welcome back to the big interview. I'm literally um, half an hour out of a really exciting morning with Emma Byrne. Emma won the Champions League with Arsenal. She won, I think, uh, 11 titles in England, league titles in England, and won the Cup, either the FA Cup or the League Cup version for women's football, about 17 times. She is by a long way the record cap holder for her country, Ireland. A really um, driving, athletic, talented goalkeeper. We start this big interview um, talking a little bit about her role um, on the night of Ireland playing at Hampden, beating Scotland 1-0 to go to Ireland's first major tournament. Happens to be the World Cup next year, depriving Scotland and Caroline Weir, who missed a penalty or saw a penalty saved of our natural, rightful slot there. And yet I get over that disappointment to speak to Emma because anybody who can't see the correlation between the, the threat of a strike that she led, amongst many others, there was a, an entire uh, national squad for Ireland in 2017, when Ireland's women footballers decided that they were tired of suffering the same thing that Roy Keane rebelled against in Saipan, second-class treatment, not proper kit, playing at a disadvantage to themselves in terms of preparation, training, um, often having to play to pay to play for Ireland. And that group of women, young and, and some towards the end of their career, decided to put their foot down, to negotiate in the harshest terms with the FAI, to bring in the professional association and to, to utterly change the way things were run in terms of international women's football in Ireland, to the extent that Emma felt bullied, had to turn her phone off for six weeks, was given a letter that I read out in the podcast, which really nakedly stated the lie of, you're ruining Irish women's football. Instead, here, five years later, with Emma now retired, but on the sidelines as a commentator at Hampden Park, and then with the squad rushing to, to hug her and greet her. Anybody who can't see the direct correlation between what that group did back in 2017 and Ireland's women improving such that they're going to the World Cup for the first time is a little bit myopic. Emma herself is a brilliant communicator, hugely funny, driven, talented, a very, very welcome guest on the big interview. We met and spoke in Barcelona because she splits her life between um, professional commitments in England and work with Football Club Barcelona, commentating for Barca TV. She's made a life out here in Spain. 
And in front of her now lies, I think, a distinct choice between becoming a top-class football analyst and co-commentator on television and radio in England, Ireland or Spain. But also, she has her coaching badges. She's an extremely good analytical football mind. The world is her ostrich, as they say in Modern Family. This is a fun guest and a high-achiever guest. And this is also part one of the big interview with Emma Byrne. Big interview, listeners. I would say we've got a treat today because I almost always say that. But we have. We've got somebody I love listening to. Somebody who's relatively new in my world in terms of knowing her, but who's perfect for the big interview because talented, highly articulate, a big achiever, and the future of something that's taking shape right now, in my opinion, anyway. So that means Emma Byrne. <laughs> Irrespective of your country's recent performance at Hamden. <laughs> Welcome to the big interview. Thank you very much. So happy to be here. Well, you, 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 that's, it's early to say that because um, we met through a mutual friend. Um, I've listened to you commentate. We've bumped into each other a couple of times at games. And I've seen you going, who is this mentler? Well, it's, it's only, <laughs> that's not true. It's only going to get worse. I, I need to outline that um, Born in Kildare... Champion of England, severally, um, a Champions League winner, which is a big phrase to be able to use. Still by a long distance, Ireland's record cap winner, but also a person of substance and, and intelligence and, and talent, which is a lovely mix, and it's why the big interview exists. Before we begin talking about you, um, if we go back to, to Hamden, where you, you were working rather than playing, damn it, it's yeah. just ridiculous... Um, for you, not just for the for the squad, for the nation, what it, what does it do to you in terms of emotions, but also mentally, about seeing your nation now going, not only going to a big tournament for the first time, going to the World Cup, but going in those circumstances, which were so both dramatic, also impressive. Now that you've had tons, of, you've spoken about it a lot too, but now you've had t- tons of time to assimilate it. Where does it leave you, both professionally and emotionally? Well, I mean, for us, for our country, it's the biggest achievement, I think, in sport in general, just because where we came from, um, the standards we had, we were setting, and then this team emerged. And as you said, the way they've done it, the group stages were really difficult um, and then we got Scotland. So I, I did have mixed emotions because I have some very, very good friends who play for Scotland. But I was happy because it's a long, long relationship we've had with Scotland. In fact, my first ever game was against Scotland under 16. So we go back a long way. I think, I mean, professionally, I was extremely proud of the girls. That's an emotion as well. Um, I... I think it's going to open up many, many doors because they're going to be on a platform, a different kind of platform that brings in the media platform, that brings in uh, sponsorship, that creates lots of work and a buzz around the country, which in turn is going to help us um, ex-players mm-hmm. as well to get involved. And emotionally, it was just incredible. I've never felt anything like it in my life. I didn't realise I was so... Frustrated 
I didn't even realize when I was commentating before, I was a little bit angry that we weren't winning. Looking back on it now, I was, um, I was a little bit hard on the girls sometimes, probably because I was channeling that through my own emotion, like I needed them to qualify. And when they did qualify, it was just a release. I just felt completely free of, of those frustration chains, so to speak. And I was just extremely emotional. I couldn't even speak. I was commentating. And thank God my, the main commentator could see that. And he just carried on talking because I was literally mute. I couldn't speak. You, you've done a really nice thing without knowing it because you've looked back to our very first interview seven years ago was with Gary Neville. And although we spoke about lots of things in Gary's career, we spoke in Sky in a little sound booth. And I started talking about Richie Benno had just died. And I knew that he was interested in cricket like I am. And we got on to him being really um, articulate about how he chooses words to describe people, the process of criticising ex-teammates or whatever. So he, he had put himself um, in a position of trying to work out what he wanted to say, where his lexicon could take him, and, and dealing with the emotions of maybe not having a go at that's really poor terminology, but speaking critically for, even constructively, and then having to face meeting that person again. Yeah. He put a lot of thought into it. Now, I've listened to you, I know that you've put a lot of thought into your analysis and your co-commentary, and also I hear and see ability and vision, vision for football. But that, that moment of going... Gosh, some of my would, would you some of your terminology betrayed emotions rather than I mean, yeah, it happened. Analysis. It happened quite recently, as in last year. I generally don't criticise. Like it's never personal. The girls no. know that. The girls yeah. know it's never ever personal. Um, but I would definitely try and be constructive with the criticism. I'm a teacher as well, so I understand that process. Mm-hmm. Um, but last year we played against Sweden at home in Tala, and I had made a comment that the girls don't know, they look like they don't know what they're doing. And I was referring to our fullbacks. And I shouldn't have said that because one of the fullbacks, who again is one of my very good friends, was annoyed and angry with the comments. She goes, what do you mean? I knew what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it wasn't a personal thing. I meant you just didn't look organised, like you weren't sure of your role, which is not your job. It's your manager's job, your coach's job. So when I explained it a bit better to her, she was like, oh, right, OK. And she, she started talking to me again. I didn't even know she wasn't talking to me, by the way. <laughs> um, so that made me think about certain, way, certain ways I, I, I speak about the players. And it came across, obviously, bad because I wasn't talking about the players individually. I was talking about their organisation mm-hmm. and what they did, did in training. Because the easy thing about football is being organised. The mm-hmm. easy thing is organising your team and giving them their roles and being very specific. So I was getting frustrated that it seemed like the girls didn't know that. So that came out in my country. So, yes, it's something I still need to work on. It's not perfect. But it's, it's interesting that the realisation of, of um, watching them qualify and feeling cleansed and realising maybe that just was a tiny gulf stream in some of the things I said. I think it's a good intellectual process to go through. I, if memory serves, maybe not right at the finals, but pretty promptly, you're mobbed by the winning team as soon as they see you on the sidelines at Hamden, <laughs> which speaks of um, friendship, affection, I don't know, also an acknowledgement of, of the, the people who, who made the path earlier on. Yeah, I mean, we speak so much about it in Ireland, about that 
standoff. We had about the strike. We had um, the media speak a lot about it. So, I mean, personally, I don't because I don't like talking about things about me. I'll talk about everybody else, but I don't like... My producer, Neil, will be listening to this and going, that's exactly what we both said. It's really, <laughs> it's really evident where Emma's very comfortable and articulate and where she's like, yeah, whatever, let's move on. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's just how I am. And it's fine. I know a lot of people are OK with that, but I find it really difficult. So when we do speak about that time, I do like to emphasise, because a lot of people think it was just me. It wasn't just me. A lot of, you know, um, interview interviewers would ask, you know, or say that you were very instrumental. OK, maybe I was, but it was a whole team. And do you know what? The, the younger t- the players were, young, the younger players were actually braver than me because I, was, I had my foot out the door. Yeah. So um, I was like, right, I might as well leave on a good note. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, I, we've been through a lot. The, the Katie McCabe, Anya Gorman, all the players, you know, that are there now that I have played with in my time, we've been through a huge deal and it was very difficult to do because, you know, the Scots will understand this as well. The Irish find it very difficult to fight for what they, you know, they deserve um, as in sporting-wise, individual-wise, as in job-wise, it's really difficult for my generation, which I'm considering Kate McCabe of my generation, um, to go and to ask for things that you feel like you deserve. So we found it very difficult, but it's, that's why we brought another organisation on board to do that, because we, that might not have happened. If the we PFAI? Or? The, the PFAI. So just, just, okay, stop for a second, because you said something culturally interesting there, and you dragged us into it, which I agree with. Um, why? Do, do we? Do you find it difficult to state our worth and ask for something? I, I, I mean, it has to be something. The way we were brought up in general. I do know my parents were like, just get your head down and work. Yeah. Just work and work and do what you have to do and don't worry about those little things. You know, they're hard workers, and I know a lot of my friends' parents are the same. You know, it wasn't about getting more is like get your education go and work and and be happy with what you have mm-hmm. stop looking for more type and if you're looking for more maybe it speaks of in theory you sounded a bit arrogant or fool yourself or something exactly when, when actually in this world which is fast moving and demanding and exploitative more and more and for some time you have had to stand up for yourself but yeah i mean it's, it's changed i think it's changed a lot but exactly what you said you don't want to come across arrogant. You don't want to come across needy, even <laughs> like you know, and that's why we had to bring someone else on because whenever we did get together, and by the way, this has been going on for years and years. That's how all the emotion came rushing out because yeah. this started when I well, well before I was even playing, but I remember it starting when I was about eighteen. I didn't have any influence in it. I was one of the babies in the teams. But through my whole career, uh, internationally, we were constantly fighting for better conditions. It might, it might be worthwhile, because what I hope this interview is doing is reaching audiences that maybe are, might be aware of your success, Arsenal's success, Ireland's qualification for the World Cup, but they might not know the details. And I know that in Ireland you've had to speak about this repeatedly and, and, and you've done so well. But if... if if I summarise this badly, please smack me down. But there, there was a, um, a super Saipan effect based on years and years of women's football being treated by the FAI as it's a privilege that, for you to be here. We're going to give you kind of just about the minimum provisions. 
It doesn't matter that it's costing you personally or financially. We probably won't have the right facilities for you or the right kit for you over and over and over again. And protests or even any push was falling on deaf ears. If I understand that, it's a really glib summary. No, that's but it. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I mean, it's it's only that with such good people working with us, like the kit man, like coaches, just in general, and just the girls themselves, we had a great time. That's why we kind of all stuck together. But actually... I don't blame some girls in previous years quitting and focusing on their job or focusing on on something else because Mm. it was a a major sacrifice for them, for all of us. But to be quite honest, we had been knocking on the door just for simple things. It would always start simple because that was our personality. We didn't want to ask for too much. And so what we felt we deserved, we'd go and we'd ask for. And nothing was being done about it, which... It wasn't about money at one stage. It was just about being productive, involving players in, I don't know, whatever the the FAI were doing, whether it was soccer schools, whether it was photo shoots for new kit, you know, little things like that. It wasn't all about money. It was just, can we promote our team? Can I use the word that you used in the front of the jerseys when you were... Just respect, no? Exactly. Or at least respect as a building block. That might not be all involvement, consultation. Yeah. Respect is the building block that seemed to have been missing. Yeah, exactly. And when we talk about investment, it wasn't about money, all about money, obviously, <laughs> it has to be money, but it was about invest your time, invest the respect, invest yourself in a little bit in the team, because, you know, for me, it was difficult. I feel a bit like Roy Keane when it comes to this. I was playing at Arsenal, I was winning everything, we were being treated really well. And then I was going back to my national team. And we weren't getting that same respect. So it was really difficult for me to go back there and not be frustrated and not demand more. Do you remember what you felt in Saipan? With Roy Keane? Yes. I I was a bit devastated because I loved him so much and we needed him. We needed him. At that stage back then, could you see crystal clear his point? I could, yeah, because I was involved in it and we were... We knew how it was and we knew... You know, obviously we thought they were treated like kings. By comparison, there's no argument. (laughs) So when he complained about that, I knew it was because he come from club-wise, something that demands, so demanding, he's so demanding of himself, so demanding of his team to win and to succeed. And that kind of builds that momentum and you expect that wherever you play. And especially for your country that you're more passionate about probably than your club so I think that was just his passion coming through Um, I don't know if he's ever said he regrets certain things but obviously we all regret certain things but I definitely the route from where it was coming from it was because he demanded more so there's a a direct equivalence between where you all drew a line and where he personally drew a line it's not identical because he was an individual they were on the verge of the World Cup there as a Scot watching him, I, I just thought a world of Keane. I understood standards, uh, and it was very divisive because I go to Dublin all, I certainly did do, and and I couldn't understand certain people I expected to feel exactly that didn't. It seems that Keane is is better with McCarthy now. I, I took longer to forgive the setup, particularly afterwards when they had the meeting and it, it was the, the, the allegations that he'd feigned injury or should have turned up for it. I was fizzing and. I'm the type of idiot that's less forgiving than Roy Keane, which is a desperate phrase to art from your own mouth. But given that there's a parallel with when you draw a line as a group, when you say, 
Right? We might strike and we're going to bring in um, external advice and support, which obviously was crucial. But what I think is often the case when something, when, when a wall is broken down, something that the people who have suffered behind the wall can't imagine will ever happen, everybody goes, well, of course, that's right. That's it. And this, um, I cut out this, I think it's from Rude Doctor, who was the high performance director, I think this is accurately quoted from a letter sent to you all then at the point where you were saying these are our, these are our requests we want to negotiate here's what we'll do if we if we don't get listened to and apparently Rude wrote we would urge you to consider seriously both individually and as a group how your proposed actions could damage your club career your inter- international reputation as players and your responsibility to the many young people who looked up to you as role models your current stance of making this into an issue about PFI representation will not yield any positive results, but will in all likelihood damage women's football and its future development. In context of not just the qualification campaign and going to the World Cup, but the clear spurt in, in what more respectful professional treatment has done, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's impossible to understand somebody more misguided, selfish, and it, if that's what you were facing all the time... It's scandalous. I don't understand how it came to that position. How did their such stupidity become ingrained? I I feel like there was a a change, there was a turn at one point, because originally when we were communicating with the FBI, because I was communicating with them, even though I was told not to, it would be better if we didn't communicate. It's better to I go through that. the... You, you, when, you, when, the, when the door slams shut, it's like, let them sweat, don't talk. Yeah, yeah. And we, I was, we were all getting advised, you know, just to stay away from it and let the professionals deal with it. But I was communicating because I felt I owed our manager, our newly appointed manager, an explanation because it was nothing to do with him. And he didn't even know... The situation was this. That wasn't Colin Bell. Was it? it was Colin, Colin Bell. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I was communicating with him, just saying, "Listen, we don't want to do it. We uh-huh. want to be in training, but we have to do something." And I was trying to give him a bit of the history. Yeah. Um, and at first he was like, "Okay, okay, just keep me informed of what's going on. Just let me know." And obviously, you know, we, we want things to be better. So I was like, "Okay." That was the initial conversation. And then as it got closer to the, the day of um, in Liberty Hall, when we actually went to the media and said we were striking, I feel like there was a change in, in everyone's mood and everyone's way to approach it because I was, getting, I was bombarded with phone calls. I was getting phone calls at three o'clock in the morning before that morning. And basically this kind of message, you know, don't do it, it will be detrimental to women's football... Um, and in the end, I just switched my phone off, and I probably didn't switch it back on for about six weeks later, being yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, I found it a very difficult time. Um, I'm hoping, I know some of the girls did get phone calls. I hope they didn't get as many, because I'm not sure we would have stuck together in that way. I do know some of the parents were getting phone calls. It seems atrocious. You, you, you're not just saying it matter-of-factly, but, you know, it's a... It's a it's a historical fact, but it genuinely seems beyond bullying. It's, it's such blindness by people for not understanding that the issue was correct, that dialogue could solve it, that probably a better future did lie ahead. It wasn't motivated by selfishness or greed. It seems genuinely astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until we spoke to the PFAI 
And they assured us what we were asking for wasn't much, that we were like, oh, okay, let's do it, then let's go for it. <laughs> because we were always doubting it. Yeah, but maybe they don't have the money. You know, this, I think it's an Irish mentality, always considering someone else's position as well. Like they, they said they didn't have the money. They said because of, you know, issues in the past, the new stadium, all this kind of stuff. And we were like, oh, sure, yeah. There's always a reason. Yeah, you know what, they don't, they don't. And then in the meantime, we were watching everybody around us, including Scotland, Wales, England for sure, just going up the ladder and improving. And I just thought, professional-wise, this is just not good enough. And it's not even about money. It's about just a better standard, better standard of training, better standard of coaches. Everything just needs to be better. We, we can't say, and I won't say, from what you did in 2017, there's a direct correlation to, to winning at Hamden and going to the World Cup. But it's a tributary. It's, it's, it's definitely helped. I think it's helped a little bit. Obviously, the girls have now the opportunity to train more, which is, <clears throat> which is a massive thing. Um, and also just football in general, I think, is, has been an attribute because there are careers in football. When I went to England, it wasn't about playing football as a career. It was about playing football as a hobby and, and then... If I understand it correctly, it was going on a lash for the weekend, but we're going to come to that. I know that you're talking about when you eventually moved rather than how it happened. But yes. you're right. It, 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 yeah, it's creating a structure whereby it can be a living, not just a, a, a terribly demanding hobby. Yeah, exactly. And there are many careers in football now. Whether It doesn't have to be on the pitch. You know, every team has gone professional in England. They need the staff, media. There's lots of different outlets. But I definitely, yeah, 2017, not only that, I think one of the biggest things, apart from the money and the support the girls are getting, one of the biggest things for me was the media attention. It was massive. It was huge. And that has kind of just carried on from then. Yeah. There's more interest in it. The, the national newspapers, the, the big TV platforms have followed that and are supporting the girls. That changed mm-hmm. in 2017. That changed from that day. It wasn't your original purpose, but it's been a, no. a byproduct. Yeah. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Can we go then to the to the game a little bit? Because much though it's stung that we were out-tacticed and that we didn't particularly perform well. There's two key moments, obviously, the missed penalty and the, and the goal. Was it a penalty? The way I understand the rules, yeah. if you're falling down, 
and your arm happens to be out, then that's not an unnatural... If you're standing and your arm's out, it's not an unnatural position. And much though I'd like to see us pop at home and go through at the World Cup, when I went, was it Neve? I mean, yeah, Neve Fahey. I, I, I don't think it was a penalty. It's, but there are so many penalties given that are so harsh. Like, this would be one of the more blatant ones I've seen. She was falling, things. right? I mean, she, she, she lost her balance. Her arm was out. Of course, it was... She created a bigger um, surface with that... So, yeah, I think it was a penalty. And, as, you know, speaking to Neve, I don't think she had any qualms about that either. Uh, plus, she's a Gaelic player, so I wouldn't be surprised if she actually did try and stop it with her hand. Um, but, yeah, it was a penalty. And, you know what, the pressure Scotland were putting on us at that time, they probably deserved it. You'd have thought, having played with Caroline and, and knowing her well, you'd have probably thought she was going to put it away. And oh, money was her, on her. Her career at Madrid at the moment, I mean, she's ripping things up at Madrid. Money was on her because of what talent mentality. Technically, she's one of the best players I've ever come across, mm-hmm. and I'd put my mic down. In fact, I was like, "That's it, we're done." If they had scored that goal, they would have went on to win maybe two or three. I'm very sure of that. As a top class goalkeeper, what did Courtney do well? Well, I think first of all, she guessed well. As a left footer, steps up you always favour your left-hand side. It's easier to, to, for the left footer to pull the ball across her. Um, and the fact is, the penalty was at a nice height for her. It wasn't a good penalty mm-hmm. for Caroline's standard anyway, for sure. So number one, Courtney guessed well. And number two, she, she um, technically she did well to parry it into safety. But in general, if you look at the penalty, Caroline should be disappointed with herself. How, how are you on the current rules? Because... You know, occasionally I get things wrong. Very rarely, just <laughs> just to encourage everybody else. But one of the things I've been wrong about is I consistently said when it was like the foot on the line and behind the line, all that, it's making a mockery of just just when you award a penalty, give the goal because increasingly they don't want they seem FIFA or the international board seem to not want to give goalkeepers a chance. But goalkeepers and goalkeepers coaches have adapted, and they're now thinking about an extra thing about. First of all, it was one hand, one foot. You could have it off the, the ground, but still in line with the line or behind it. Now you've got to have the foot actually touch the ground, be behind the line. It's like, all right, okay, you've caught up with this and that. We're going to introduce something else. Well, where are those rules? Because she gets, she does it right, and we see it week in week out in international coverage of football that keepers are just having the plan about guessing right and leaving a trailing leg and still leaping fully across a goal. What yeah, do you I think mean, about I, that? I think it's a bit ridiculous, to be honest. I mean, the, the, the advantage is with the penalty taker, and yet they're still trying to take away any little glimpse of hope we have. I mean, there are too many rules. I understand why they wanted to stop goalkeepers approaching. I mean, I played with a goalkeeper that used to come out maybe you know, three big steps. That was ridiculous. Okay, that's silly. So I understand why they were trying to to limit limit that. But you can't expect a goalkeeper to be thinking about all of these things and then save a penalty, be an excellent penalty stopper. As well as that, which more infuriating than anything for me is that it's not consistent. You see one game, well, he was off his line by two feet. And then another one, they're calling the penalty back because he stepped a tiny bit. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're not consistent with it. They have to be consistent with it. What was your relationship with penalties as an Arsenal player or Ireland player? Um, I think I was known to be quite good at penalty saving. One of my first FA Cup finals, uh, we were playing against Fulham, who had 
become professional, the first professional team. We were still semi-professional. And it was my first season and I was starting, but the other goalkeeper was getting back fit, so we weren't sure who was going to start. Anyway, I started in the final. And Fulham were all over us. They absolutely bombarded us. And they got a penalty towards the end and I saved it. So ever since then... (laughs) I think there was... Uh, Do you remember the moment? Of course, yeah, I remember well, it. Well, talk day. us through it's a, it's, it. We've got an audience that actually likes to hear talented people saying, this is what I did, this is what I felt like. So if you do remember the moment... This is how long ago it was. We had a sweeper. <laughs> I remember our, our sweeper, Carol, done our second name, terrible with names, by the way, uh, gave away the penalty. And we, I'd already been extremely busy that game. And I was like, that's it. We're done. That was my initial reaction. Carol was crying, so I was like, oh my God. Marianne Spacey came up to me. She actually, Marianne Spacey came up to me before the game and she said that I've heard that Fulham think you're the weakest link in the team, which I didn't know how to take. I was like, why are you telling me this now? Like just before the game. So I was a little bit, but I was like, oh, well, I'm going to show them in that case. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, when they got the penalty, my initial thing was like, oh, we're done, like, that's it. They, this, they had a Norwegian playing with them again, I can't remember her name, who was very clinical. Um, and I was like, that's it, we're 1-0 down, we're not going to come back, we're already, you know, on the back foot. And then I remembered what Marianne said, and I was like, hang on a minute, this is my chance to, to <laughs> prove them wrong and to basically give them a signal. <laughs> and the, the, the Norwegian stepped up and a couple of the girls had come up to me and was like, you're going to save it, you've got it, like, no problem. And I was like, yeah, I do, actually. I felt really confident in that moment. And normally I don't. Normally I'm like, I'm just going to guess, I'm going to maybe a bit of look. But I felt, no, I'm going to save this. She was right-footed. And again, like Courtney saved from Caroline's left foot, I wanted her to go to my right. right. Plus, I was stronger on my right. So uh, what I did, which you see a lot of keepers do now, but I didn't, it was just something I thought I'd made up (laughs) at the time. When she was, when she'd made her first step towards the ball, I had just dropped my shoulder a little bit left because she was looking at me the whole time. I just dropped it a little bit left. I'm doing a little action as I speak. Um, And then as she struck it, she went to my right. And actually after the game, she told me, that she thought I had gone to my left. So it worked, whatever I'd done. And she said she was going to go to my left and changed her mind because of that. So. Wow. So I didn't tell her. I did that, it on purpose. That's, that's better still than saving it. Having her tell you her narrative inside her head just as the icing on the cake. Yeah, it, actually it was because I just assumed I'd guessed the right way. But actually I had You'd encouraged her. It's a great game of spoof. And now you watch the, the stutter step taken, men's game, women's game. And you watch the stutter step and, for example, Sergio Ramos is very good at it. But I've seen players do that and do a stutter step. There was one recently, I forget who missed. I, I should be, th- I was commentating on it. And, and they're looking at the ball. Well, hold on a second. If you're doing that stutter step and dragging the, the kicking foot, whether it's left or right... You have to be looking at the keeper to see if your stutter step has made the move. That's what the whole thing is about. So the idea about you doing a high noon, the two of you, you and the Norwegian, like, going out, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, you drop your shoulders. Brilliant. <laughs> well, the thing about the stutter step is that you, you can actually have, be focused on the ball and still see your peripheral. You should be able to strike a penalty from 11 metres well, which should, 
without looking at the ball, and it should be the, the, the relationship between the keeper. Love it, absolutely. But even if you're looking at the ball, you can see the keeper. You can see ah, the keeper moving, yeah. Okay. You can see them. But the problem with the stutter step is you're waiting for the keeper to move. And if they don't move, then you have to try and generate the power to, to, to place it and change your mind nearly. And that's difficult for the I know I'm the amateur, I'm talking to the expert, but in the, in the scenario you've painted there, if you're about to strike and the keeper hasn't moved, the chances of them getting down to either side has gone down because you need it just, you just as a keeper, don't you need just to be almost like, for example, in, in Caroline's, in the one that was safe from Caroline, you know, Ireland's keeper is all the way down there. And I mean, for me, you have to anticipate a little bit, but um, the Bob Wilson idea also works because he told me, we were talking about penalties and he came to me saying he heard I was a good penalty stopper and he asked me what I do. He was interested. And I said, I try to encourage them to go one way, um, but I anticipated it. Mm -hmm. And he told me that there is a foot inside the post that you are never going to get to. Never. Mm -hmm. Only if you anticipate. So you're left with a dilemma. If you don't anticipate and react, which is what a lot of people, coaches, try to tell me to do, you, you can get to the ball if you react. But you're never going to get to those places mm-hmm. if they put it in the right place. So, I mean, it didn't give me any answers because I still didn't know which one I should choose. So most of the time I anticipated, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Unless I didn't respect the penalty taker. If I didn't think they were extremely good, I would try and react because I didn't think they were going to put it in the corner. It's interesting. We, I mean, we could genuinely dedicate the whole podcast to this and Bob Wilson, um, Arsenal double uh, goalkeeper in seventy seventy one, I think. Scotland goalkeeper too. Legend at the club. Of a fantastic, decent man too. Oh, he's brilliant. You had an, brilliant I, I, I don't know how you felt about him. So you're, you're Jason Brown is an ex-dandy as a goalkeeper coach too. Yeah, a short. He was there. He was there for maybe one season, I think. So played for the dandy. So you might. I've never <laughs> met him. He played for Aberdeen, so that's good enough for me. Before we leave the game. I have to talk about the goal because it was extraordinary. <laughs> and I need you... Well, I thought it was a beautiful goal. I can't tell. Was it Neve that... When the ball is played forward loosely by Scotland, one of your defending players gets... It's just sensational. I see the ball coming. I'm not going to go for chest control, but it's a controlled header uh, down into Denise's path. And I, I can't remember who it was. I thought it was Neve, maybe. Neve Fahey. Was it Neve? It was Neve Fahey. I mean, she had an excellent game. And we actually had a conversation because I wouldn't have spoken about our back three come five. They say it's a back three, it's a back five. I wouldn't have spoken about them very nicely or complimentary. Um, and I've had conversations with them because I want them to understand that it's not about them personally, it's just the organisation, as mm-hmm. I said before. So I've, I've spoken to Neve loads about this. And speaking about Scotland, I said, if you don't go in to midfield and get close to Caroline Weir, Caroline loves that space, doesn't mm-hmm. she? Mm-hmm. That's our problematic area, that space in between the midfield and the back three or five. I said, if one of you don't go in there to her early when the ball's on the way, you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get absolutely torn apart. And Neve was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We have to do it. And it's exactly what Neve did. Every time the ball, someone looked like they were going to play to Kaz, she was in there on her. And she didn't get sniffed, did she? I mean, I consider Kaz one of the best footballers in the world. She looked 
average that game because of how we defended. So when that ball was getting played into that area, Neve went in and, as you said, cushioned the ball down to Tanisha. That's quite it. what she did on the move to, to, to be anticipating how you control it at all, defend it at all, but also seeing somebody and then cushioning the header. I still think at any level of the game, I still think that's a, a laudable moment when you're like, I can do three things at once, where I anticipate, read the rest and do the technical thing well. And, and it's, the, it's, the, you know, it's the root of the goal. But I thought it was sensational. Yeah, I mean, they were talking about experience, really experienced players there. I mean, players that have been playing for the national team for 15 years, nearly at this stage. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. Um, I mean, it is, I consider, one of our best units, our defence. Um, and they're very, very experienced. And, of course, Firmini Fahi is the best defender we have. OK, and then <coughs> Denise's ball, because the ball comes to her... It, 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 any counter-attack, people like to call it transitions now, don't they? And how you use a transition, how you react to it. It took me a long time to understand that word. But um, the way she runs onto it and the pass she releases, I think is, again, at any level, men or women, it doesn't matter. It's just a beautiful ball. Yeah, I mean, I'm so used to that with Denise. And it's again, it's a player that probably doesn't get enough recognition, certainly not on you know, the, the top, top level front. Um, she's a fantastic player, absolutely brilliant. But am I exaggerating the quality of the pass? No, no, but I'm so used to it. I see her doing it all the time. She does it in training, she does it um, with Ireland, but she had the space to do it. Yeah, but I think if you lift that pass and apply it to Real Madrid or Barcelona or Liverpool or Chelsea, people are going to be ooing and eyeing. Oh, yeah. it's what we all pay for, to, to pay our tickets to go to. It's why we sit and watch it. Yeah, no, she... It was transcendental. And and the finish too, because the control is is two foot. I think left foot first. First touch was. Uh, we move right foot first and left foot. No, left, left foot, foot first then right foot, right foot finish. Yeah, yeah. Three touches, left foot, right foot, right foot. Heather Payne, the girl that Amber Barrett, the goal scorer, came on for. Heather Payne is a fantastic player. Right. She does an amazing job for us. She, you know, her work rate is incredible. She really helps the midfield as well by closing down. But if you want that ball to fall to anyone, it's going to be Amber Barrett because her finishing in a 1v1 situation, she's absolutely quality. Mm-hmm. And when she came on, I was like, oh, I'm not sure she's going to be able to do, you know, keep that work rate up that Heather Payne had. And we need that as a transitional team, mm-hmm. <laughs> counter-attacking team. Um, but obviously she was absolutely I brilliant. Was a sensational goal. Great really goal. Did. Still wish we could. It wasn't through. easy, was it? Because it was on her left foot and she managed to nearly toe poke it. Well, I, I thought that, I, I mean, again, I'm only an amateur watching, but I thought that was part of it because when I see strikers that through peripheral vision, like you were talking about, go like, I know where the keeper's balance is, or I know if I, if I put it away now. Ansu Fati's got it. And Messi had it because it wasn't always power with him. Jimmy Greaves had it way back. It's like knowing that if I release now, the, yeah, the, the that's what it is. And is, exactly, that's the that's most difficult like thing me. for the keeper because it was on Amber's left side. I think the keeper thought she needed, or she had an extra second Time. to get yeah. set because yeah. Amber had to hit it with her left. But actually she took it a little bit earlier than what your keeper thought. So um, it's impossible to save when you're on the move. It was pretty classy. Um, can I take you to um, before we go back to Arsenal and the Champions League we're, we're in the city of Barcelona right now um, you've 
been watching, you've been close to, you've been commentating on the the growth of something quite phenomenal because although Barcelona had years where they were appearing around the top of European football, right now, albeit they lost the last Champions League f- uh, final, the Ballon d'Or belongs to Barcelona, twice in a row. The, the, the performance against Chelsea was pretty stunning. And you've seen the way in which there's been both an exponential growth, an ability to attract talent, a developed style of play. Suddenly there's a classical in Spain. A lot of people won't remember that Real Madrid's uh, women's football setup is relatively new. Um, what have you watched that you've enjoyed or that you can identify as being important, the details, the inside view of the way in which Barcelona football for the women's team has, has grown so rapidly and so successfully? Well, I think the first thing you'd have to talk about is how the club itself have treated the girls and how they've initiated this professionalism within the club and included the, the feminine side with it. Um, the, the, the women's team belong there. They feel like they belong. They have their own section. They've got their own dressing rooms. It's theirs. And the club have made them feel that. Also, the investment in money has been massive. Um, not just the players' salaries. I'm talking about the background staff. They've got in excellent, excellent people, whether it's conditioning, coaching, they have their own doctor, little things like this that are really important to get the best out of your girls physically and mentally. And the club has been the catalyst for that in women's football, I think. Um, and then all that goes into, you know, signing the, the right players, building on what you have, the fact that you've got one of the world's best players in midfield. But Alexia has become the best because of Barca as well, because of all the extra training, the conditioning, the, the coaching... And, of course, the players around her, you can't be the best on your own. You've got the rest of your team. There's an excellent team there. And they've just adopted the Barca style, that DNA. You know, we, you know if you know Barca, they, they, they have their own family of coaches. It's very unique. It's very familiar. I think that's a Spanish word I put <laughs> into English. And it, it works. Bar- the Barca Femini were playing more like Barca than Barca were two years ago. Yeah, definitely. And um, because because the, the, the ethos hadn't changed, like with the men's team, different coaches maybe brought in different ideas, and it became quite messy dependent. And even now under Xavi, you wouldn't say it's it's very similar to what Barcelona played under Rijkaard or um, Pep Guardiola, whereas the Femini side stuck to core uh, Barca principles more. Yeah, and, and you know, that's easier when you're winning. When you're winning yeah. games, you're not under pressure to, to try and win games, to try and get the most, uh, you know, the best way to score. Where the Barca men under Koeman did that, didn't they? they? They just needed the points. Everything else went out the window type Agreed. of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I understand that as well. So the Barca family, they've been you know, the absolute titans here in Spain for years. They win everything domestically. In fact, when I'm commentating, I'm hoping that the opposition play well because I want to because see them tested. It gets a little bit boring when they're winning 8, 9, 10, nil. I mean, they won. They, what did they win? It was a 10 nil the other night or 9 nil in the Champions League. And, and that's a shame for me more than anything. Because you stopped developing? <laughs> I don't think you stopped developing because these girls are hungry. They're absolute 
beasts for you know improving and winning absolutely everything and of course they didn't win the Champions League last year so they're they're here on a mission but I just think for opposite I mean I've never been beaten 10 nil, so I don't really know how it feels but I imagine it's completely demoralizing I've been beaten 5 nil by the USA and that was enough for me to think I don't want to play these again I know we have to work hard and for you know as a team as a national team where are we going it does make you question things and you just hope that the other clubs the other teams start developing a little bit but you want to see a good game of football don't you I mean there was a stage where I didn't even watch the qualifiers for the Champions League and I started watching in the you know, the quarterfinals. Because there were walkovers. There were walkovers, and I want to see a good games. So you just hope the rest of the. I mean, it's up to the other teams to catch up. Obviously, Barca are doing a great job, and they'll continue. The rest has, has to catch up.